and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have an award-winning chef on the podcast to talk about his dynamic and winding path to incredible success, the prevailing character trait that has gotten him there, and what it means to be a leader. He's a chef, author, James Beard Award winner, executive producer at Food & Wine magazine, and a newly minted judge on Chopped. It's Kwame Nwachi. Kwame, welcome to the podcast. I mean, your story is so layered, so inspiring. I feel like you've lived so many lives already just by your early 30s. I guess, first of all, when you look back on your journey so far, what would you say is the prevailing character trait that you possess that has propelled you forward to where you are today? I would say, you know, without a doubt, tenacity, just continuing to keep going under any circumstance, whether that's success, whether that's, you know, uh, perceived failure, it's just to keep going, you know, because life in, in, it, in and of itself is such a gift. And to not continue would be a disservice to that present that has been given to you. That tenacity that you speak of, do you feel like that is something that is innate or is that something you had to learn and develop over time? It was something that was innate. I think it, it definitely was developed over over a period of time. But continuing to push forward has always been something that that I embraced. It was something that was taught to me, you know, something that was instilled in me at a very young age. So yeah, it's it's something that it lives inside of me. And it's one of my favorite traits about me. Another trait about you is just, you know, the the way food has been part of your journey pretty much every step of the way. You went from helping your mom in the kitchen at just five years old. You cooked on a ship in the Gulf, fine dining kitchens uh, across the country. When did you know that food would be that through line in your story? I would say about, you know, when I was 20 years old, I had started a catering company. I had to do this event that I had talked my way into. You know, I walked into the store, into Soho and struck up a conversation with the store clerk who happened to be the owner of the store. And the store had just opened and she was talking about this launch party. And I was like, are you excited about the party? And she was like, I I can't wait for the party. The only thing I'm missing uh, is a caterer. And at that moment, I didn't really have a catering company. I worked with my mom. But at that moment, you know, I needed to pay rent. <laughs> and <laughs> yep. I was like, you never asked me what I did. And she's like, what do you do? I was like, I'm a caterer. Look at, look at how the universe lines up. And she asked me how old I was. And I told her that was irrelevant. And, you know, <laughs> I then went on to do this catering event for her. But before that, she asked me to do these miniature cheesecakes and to do a tasting the next day. So I stayed up all night making these cheesecakes and I didn't have any, I didn't really have any music playing. I wasn't talking to anyone. I was literally up for like 12 hours straight trying to perfect this cheesecake. And it was at that moment that I knew I could do this for the rest of my life. I wasn't getting paid for this particular endeavor. You know, I said I would do it pro bono just to see, and maybe I become the official caterer of the store. I, I wasn't doing it for any fame. You know, I wasn't, I was doing it just because I genuinely loved to do it. And at that moment, I realized that I found my passion. I can just imagine, you know, you're you in a New York apartment, like up Tiny. all night. You know, those those kitchens are not necessarily always always the best. Sheet trays stacked everywhere, you know, a tiny <laughs> little oven. 
it was a sight to see for sure. I would love to be a fly on the wall. Same. Uh, well, let's take it back to the the younger years, the formative food experiences. You know, five years old, you're you're helping your mom in the kitchen. You, as you mentioned, you you owned a catering company. You know, just on the spot. Did you always enjoy being around food, or did it feel like chores up until that moment? You know, at twenty years old that you just spoke of. Oh, I loved it. I loved mm-hmm. everything about food. I loved the process of getting uh, raw material and turning it into something edible and beautiful and delicious and full of full of soul and artistry. It was something that was a direct life raft to my mom. It was it was a, it was a way that I could spend time with her because most of the time she was cooking, whether it was for us or it was for patrons outside of the house. So for me, it was a way to spend time with my family. And it was something that my family was always extremely proud of. We come from a long line of chefs and restaurateurs. So you have to know how to make at least one dish in our family. You got to pull up to the cookout with something. <laughs> you, know, you can't come with cups. You can't come with plates. You have to come with something that adds to it. So, so for me, it was a rite of passage, like learning how to cook, learning how to build flavors, learning how to season my food. And that chore turned into a hobby and that hobby turned into a passion. I'm curious, what is the first dish that you learned to cook, that you learned to perfect to bring to the cookout? You, you don't bring scrambled eggs to a cookout, but that <laughs> is the first dish that I learned to perfect. Okay. Um, my mom taught me how to make eggs, but you know, from there it was, you know, definitely crowd pleaser things like, you know, baby back ribs smoked, you know, uh, we, we used to smoke them on the fire escape. Uh, on the fifth floor mm. in New York City, you know, jerk chicken wings. We used to also smoke those on, on a little tiny Weber grill. And my mom showed me the art of like caramelizing meat properly and, and you know, getting that that right layer of brown, that deep brown on, on each individual piece of meat and giving that care and love into it. So, you know, I learned a lot of dishes, you know, and I also learned a lot of the fundamentals of cooking from her because my family is Creole, you know, and we have a lot of French elements in our dish. So I learned the basis of a lot of different cuisine through my mom at a very, very young age. As you've now gotten older, also balancing a million things yourself, do you think back to those times and wonder how your mom was making it all happen? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because people ask me, how do you stay inspired and how do you keep going? And I just think back to my mom, you know, she had two kids in the 90s trying to make a way while still pursuing her passion. Whenever I think I have it tough, I don't have it that tough. That's really what gives me inspiration when I need to find something to keep pushing and keep going and go a little further and do another hour. I think about her and she had no choice. So for me, I have no choice but to keep going. I have no choice but to dig deep and to continue to find that inspiration around every corner. I know when you were 10, she sent you to live with some relatives in Nigeria as mm-hmm. apparently you were you were misbehaving in school a bit. And to your surprise, you ended up being there for two years. First of all, what was her primary purpose for kind of thrusting you into that experience? You know, I, I was acting up and I don't think it was in ways that were super mischievous or, or criminal even. It was just that she saw the vision of where it could go, of how my mind was working at a young age. Uh, which is easy to, it's easy to veer up on the wrong path, you know, where I grew up. So she wanted to nip that in the bud, you know. She told me I was only going for two weeks, though. I, I didn't <laughs> oh, want to really? put that out there. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. You know, a two week little vacation in Nigeria. Like, I'm about <laughs> this. This is great. And then, you know, two months went by and I was just like, you know, school's about to start September. And she's like, yeah, you're not coming home until you learn respect. <gasps> yeah. And that was, that was really a, a 
hard pill to swallow at the time because those are formative years. You know, I was like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, I was there from 10 to 12, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It taught me so much. It gave me such foundation for just being a good human being, for learning how the rest of the world lives and what we take for granted here. How did those those two years really mold your point of view from where you were when you got there to where you were when you left and to who you are now? I think just basic human rights, it, it instilled in me. You know, there was no running warm water. There was no running water, period. There was no electricity. We had to raise our own livestock. For me, it it directly correlated to my career path as well. But it just, it showed me how to be a better human being and a citizen of the earth and to really appreciate the things we have here. Yeah, it was quite inspiring, but also it, it gave me a spark of creativity. You take an American kid and throw them into an environment where they don't have electricity or running water and they have to create their own games to get by. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I think that's a recipe for success for everyone. I think everyone should do this. You know, they say everyone <laughs> should work in the service industry, you know, yep. at least one time. Everyone should live in a country that does not have the same luxuries that America has at least once. And it'll give you a greater perspective and a greater appreciation for what we have here. What about the food experiences um, during your time there? Do you recall anything significant that that really was impactful? I know you said that, you know, you're raising your own livestock and that kind of thing. What do you remember about those food experiences there? Oh, man, you know, for me, the food, like the, the cooked food, the art of it, it was so involved. It showed me at least the refinement that went into West African cooking and Nigerian cooking. It would start in the daytime, you know, of killing these animals, of of skinning them, roasting them. Then it would start with the sauce making. You know, they would go to the palm trees and cut down the palm fruit and, and then make palm oil with that, you know, and then start cooking their food and layering these flavors. All the different things that went in them, you know, took months to make, you know, whether it was a smoked and dried crayfish or, you know, the, the stock fish that was dried out or the different fermented beans that went into different specific dishes. It showed me that this food is as refined as, as, as anything that you see in any other culture, if not more. And you know that's where I gained this deep respect for these dishes. What does it mean to you now to be able to incorporate those dishes, those techniques into everything that you're doing? It means everything. It means everything. I mean, I remember the first time I served fufu and stew at my restaurant on uh, Guy de Grand plates, you know, these, these these fine porcelain plates. And I cried. I cried seeing it come off the pass and going into the dining room. Because for so long, this food has been kept concealed in the mom and pop shops and not, not given a voice. The inaudible are, are not able to speak, you know, their, their truth and show that this food is not as easy as step one, two, three. And I was able to like plate it, present it beautifully, serve it and and charge money for it. And Mm -hmm. I I felt the pride of my nation when that plate was walking, swinging out of the doors of the kitchen into the dining room. I feel like you kind of have this this talent for, you know, identifying these opportunities to acquire resources that you need to get where you want. You know, you took a chance to cook on a ship during the BP oil spill. You came back to New York City. You sold candy on the subway to fund that catering business. Where does that hustle and that fire in your belly come from? The Bronx, baby. Growing <laughs> up in the Bronx, it teaches you how to hustle. I mean, I think just being in different scenarios my whole life, you know, a little bit of being in the mm. Bronx, a little bit of being in Nigeria, living in Louisiana, 
trying to always make a way for myself, but it really stems from believing in myself. I'm my own biggest cheerleader. And it has to be that way because you can also be your worst critic. So if you're going to be your worst critic, you, you got to balance it out with someone saying like, go you all the time. <laughs> and, you know, for me, that's what really keeps me taking these calculated risks. I'm always excited. I go into every failure with the same excitement. It, what, <laughs> every project, whether it fails or wins, I'm excited about it. You know, like this is the next big thing, because for me, it is the next big thing. You know, I have a mantra that every day is day one. You should go into every day like this is the first day. Like how excited would you be? How excited were you when this was your first podcast and it was the <laughs> first person you were talking to? You know, why ever lose that excitement, that gusto and that bravado and that like that swagger that you have and it is your first time. And that's when it resonates with people much more. How do you not get discouraged, though, or, or, or bring that fire back to life when you do experience, you know, those failures that you, you spoke of? Yeah, well, I do get discouraged, but it, I don't let that discouragement rule me. And we need to think of things as as emotions, you know, em, emotions come and go. Emotions pass. You're going to have a good day. And you're going to have a bad day. But we can't dwell on that one negative thing, just like we can't dwell on that one positive thing, because you can still use fear for your benefit and use it as fuel. Fear is something that it, it that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It made you like heighten the, like back in the day, heightened senses that something was about to attack you so that you were able to be quick on your feet and escape that. But you don't continue to dwell on that fear once that thing is over with. So I think you, you just you can be discouraged. Absolutely. Yeah. But then prepare and then prepare for the next battle because it's not over. And the journey is really the reward. Yeah. And part of that journey, you know, took you to culinary school. You talk about, you know, these calculated dis decisions and, and risks. What influenced that decision to go to school instead of just staying in the kitchens and kind of working your way through the stations and the ranks? I knew at the time that I needed to take a step back in order to take a giant leap forward. And I wasn't going to be able to do that without, for me, this is not for everyone. For me, I needed some formal training. I needed to see what was happening at the highest level of education for this particular craft. So then I can then put my own spin on it and do the things that I wanted to do. So, you know, I figured if I want to become the best, you know, I need to learn from the best. And the CIA is the best culinary school in the world. So I decided to go there to then learn. And then, you know, while you're going to school, you're also working in, in several fine dining establishments, environments. You generously talk about these experiences in your book, Notes from a Young Black Chef. How did these years shape your perspective on what it means to run a kitchen and more importantly, cultivate an environment that is inclusive and inviting? Yeah, you know, people always ask me about that, like, how did you do all these things at the same time? And I always say that, Idle time is a gift. So it was with idle time that I was able to really hone my craft so much and use that idle time for my advantage. And, you know, working in these kitchens, it taught me so much. You know, it, it, it let me know where I stood against the best chefs in the world, which is, it's, that's also a gift. I think, you know, if you want to do any craft, you need to do it at the highest level. You can actually see the person that is the best you know, I've worked with the best meat cooks in the world. I can be like, okay, mm -hmm. uh, there's only five, you know, three Michelin star restaurants in this city right now. And I'm working at one of them. This is one of the three best meat cooks in this city. What do I need to do 
to make my meat look like yours. Oh, okay. You need to sear it like this. You need to leave it at the pan a little bit, you know, don't touch it. Make sure your pan is smoking, you know, uh, season your meat after you sear it. So the liquid doesn't come out of it. You're able to really pick up on these habits if you're really paying attention. So I learned the art of cooking. <laughs> like mm-hmm. literally I learned about leadership and how I wanted to be and how I didn't want to be. Um, I learned the business acumen of how to eliminate labor costs and, and food waste. So these are the things I picked up along the way. And these are the things that I was able to immediately impart into my own restaurant that I opened soon after I worked at these these restaurants. What What is the single most important role you feel that you have as a leader in these environments? Uh, we wear so many hats. I would say the single most important thing that I do is create the culture for the restaurant. Because I can hire somebody to do the numbers. I can hire someone to run a pass. I can hire someone to run a dining room. I can hire someone to operate the bar, but you cannot hire someone to instill your culture and what Mm. you want this restaurant to be and how you want people to talk and how you want people to walk and how you want people to behave and how you want people to engage. Those things are so important and it only comes by example. Mm -hmm. So you have to be there to instill that culture so then that that can trickle into the rest of the staff. Well, as you mentioned, you did open your own restaurant in 2016 after a stint on Top Chef in 2015. Um, it was a, an aspirational tasting menu, a much anticipated opening, unfortunately closed after just 11 weeks. I mean, I can't imagine the inner turmoil you must have felt at that time. How did you get through that? It was it didn't close. It was a pop up. You know, it was just a pop up <laughs> restaurant. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Rewrite history. Rewrite yeah, history. exactly. Uh, no, I mean, I was devastated when it closed. I just was like, my, my career is over. You know, I was, I was so young and it was so public. I don't think people understand, you know, when someone is in the public eye, especially at such a young age, they're still learning and growing, but they're just doing it under scrutiny and it's being recorded in real time. It was heartbreaking, but then I had to take a step back and be like, wait a minute, look of what you've accomplished. And you're still only 23 years old. This isn't yeah. a failure. <laughs> this is a learning experience. You have so much more time to do whatever you want to do. So you can boohoo for a, a certain period of time, but you got to pick yourself up and look in the mirror and remember who you are, that none of these singular things ever defined you. You know, you are in control of your own narrative. You have to keep going. As long as you are here, you got to <laughs> keep going. You know, there are more people rooting for you than there are rooting for you to fail. Mm-hmm. So why don't you continue going and not let that be in vain? And that's what propelled me to continue pushing forward. And also having a great group of people around me that sometimes believed in me even more than I believed in myself at certain periods of time um, that would remind me of that. What did you learn during that time? I learned I learned so many things, but I learned to make sure that you have a good team because, you know, opening a restaurant or any business is like a marriage. You know, there's going to be good parts and there's going to be bad parts, but we've got to be willing to work through those things in order to to have a really fruitful relationship and and a successful business. Because I open, you know, a lot of people ask me that, like, what did you learn? Did you, uh, (laughs) what did you figure out you needed to do? I don't know, man. I opened a restaurant six months later that was one of the best restaurants in the the world at the time. So it wasn't anything that was like super incremental besides like picking the right people around me to make sure that the vision was completed. Um, And I was able to do that shortly after. 
Yeah, I mean, you you definitely bounced back from that experience. You accepted an offer to run a restaurant in Washington, D.C. that became Kith and Kin, where you served a, a menu inspired by your roots in Jamaica, Trinidad, Nigeria, Louisiana. What made you decide to pivot from what you envisioned for Shaw to the diaspora-inspired menu at Kith and Kin? I let go of anger because I was angry that the restaurant had closed at first, you know? I was like full of like, I want like spite. And I wanted to show people to know I can do this. And I was going to open up a very similar restaurant to Shaw Bijou once again. And then I thought, let me get rid of that emotion and really think about what would be meaningful. And there was a lot of things that were happening around me. I did an event for Questlove and cooked beef patties, you know, like for the first time and everyone was really enjoying it. I was like noticing what I was cooking at home for myself. And it was like brown stew chicken and oxtails, like things that like, I needed comfort at that time because I was feeling so down. And I thought, why don't I open, you know, a restaurant where my friends and family would like to eat, you know, something that really highlights them. And I, I remember just typing that in, in Google, friends and family, and then Kith and Kin popped up, which, which uh, you know, it's old English for friends and family. Mm. And I knew that I had something at that point in time. And I imagine, I mean, it was a, it was a hotel restaurant. So, you know, you have customers coming in from all, all walks of life, all over mm-hmm. the world. How rewarding was it to to share those foods that, like you said, it they really told the story of who you are? Oh man, you have no idea. It was like it was a rainbow of people in the in the dining room every single night. I remember being so stressed out because I was operating. I never even worked in a restaurant this big. It was two hundred seats. It was breakfast, wow. lunch, and dinner. Um, you know, every single seven days a week. And it was stressful for me. And when I would walk into the dining room and see, you know, Nigerian people so excited to see themselves reflected on in, 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 in such an atmosphere, in such a way that hasn't been done before, and seeing, you know, white people next to them asking the Nigerian table, how do you eat fufu, you know, and like mm-hmm. seeing Puerto Rican people seeing themselves in the food, like in, in a certain, seeing a part of themselves in a certain aspect of the food, because we're all connected at the end of the day, right? That's what kept me going. That was like, okay, I can do another month. Okay, <laughs> I can get back in there. Yeah, you know, and, and that's what really kept me going. What was your favorite item on the menu there? Probably the curried goat. It's one of my earliest food memories of being on my grandmother's hip and, you know, this roti with curried goat coming, you know, and she popped it into my mouth and, it was like an explosion of flavors, you know, there's like 12 different spices in curry powder alone. And then you add onions and green onions and garlic and ginger, you know, it was like, it was so beautiful to be able to eat that anytime I wanted. Was that her recipe or did you put your own spin on it? I put my own spin on it for sure. I made, I made it my own. <laughs> as, as you have done many, many times with everything mm-hmm. in your life. Um, and, and that was a big year for you. 2019, uh, you were named best new chef by food and wine magazine. Esquire's Chef of the Year, Rising Star Chef of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. I remember actually seeing you on the red carpet doing doing the red carpet show that year and and remember being very inspired by your story. How did it feel to kind of finally receive that recognition after working so hard and after the disappointments? It felt really good. It was a moment that I had envisioned my entire professional career. I used to sneak into the James Beard Awards and sit in the rafters. (laughs) <laughs> and imagine my name and practice my James Beard Award speech. You know, this is with like no real training or anything. Mm-hmm. I was just in there 
to have it finally happen, it was pretty incredible. It was everything was moving in slow motion. I was really able to absorb that moment and those moments, like being in the green room, at, you know, behind the curtain and, and talking to all the other winners. It, it was just it, it words. I can't really put it into words. I also was so drained from anxiety that I went to <laughs> sleep right after I didn't go out and party. And I, I I go to the James Beard Awards every year and I'm I am partying. And this year. I had zero in me. <laughs> I could only go to sleep. So it was it was a, it was a beautiful moment that I would cherish forever. You know that I will never forget and I'm so glad and so honored to have been to have been presented with those awards. Absolutely. When you reach those milestones as as, as exhausted as as you might have been at the time, I mean are you able to to celebrate maybe after you've gotten some sleep or are are you still kind of like all right what's next I got I got to keep grinding No I celebrate these these moments for sure with my loved ones and you know and then we keep, keep get up and keep going right? yeah. it's important to celebrate yourself because there was so much work that went behind it and you kind of lose sight of that because it happened so far after but we got to take a second to celebrate and and really really appreciate all of the fortune, you know, and all of the gifts that we've been given. When we come back, Kwame tells us what to expect in his brand new cookbook and what it was like filming Chopped. Well, I saw that you were recently celebrating uh, your brand new first ever cookbook, My America Recipes from a Young Black Chef, which officially hit stores in May. What does it feel like to write. And then now you're holding your first ever cookbook. It's surreal because it happened so long ago that I wrote it and it's finally in my hands. And then for me, I'm hypercritical of everything I do, honestly, but it's such a beautiful book. And it's, it's also a book as much as it is a, like a recipe book, you know, Mm. there's so many stories woven in. You can really learn about all of these different ingredients and spices and you know, and proteins and produce. So like it, it, it's beautiful to see. And it also tells a story of me, you know, that hasn't really been told before. Mm. I mean, I know you had some recipes in, in each chapter of your memoir as well. Do any of these make repeat appearances or are these all brand new? Oh, come on, man. <laughs> I'm not repeating anything. This is all you gotta you stuff. gotta buy both. You gotta buy both of them, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's all it's all new stuff. You know, it's all it's all fresh. It shows the version of my America, you know, and what, what I grew up eating in, in America as, as a young child, you know, recipes from the Caribbean, recipes from Africa, recipes from the South, recipes from, you know, uh, Latin regions. So like, you know, growing up in New York, it's such a melting pot. And mm-hmm. I wanted to show all of its glory. Your confidence is inspiring and not just in the kitchen. You you have other interests and passions as well. I know you've been acting lately. You were just named executive producer for Food & Wine magazine. How would you encourage someone to give themselves permission to step outside their comfort zone or their, you know, the label of their job or role to pursue these other passions and interests that they might have? I would say think about when the ice cream truck rolled through your neighborhood. And that feeling you got, chase that feeling and do (laughs) anything that makes you feel even remotely close to that, because that's where the magic happens of chasing that metaphoric high of happiness, of true, unabashed, genuine happiness that isn't hurting anyone. Chase that. And I'm pretty sure you'll see so many different lanes open up for you of things that you've always wanted to do. 
And you don't have to be the, the best at something as soon as it happens, right? It's beautiful to see the progress of things that you're doing. So continue to chase that happiness, continue to get outside of your comfort zone, continue to suck at something and see where that takes you. And I think it will blow your mind how talented you actually are. I know you were recently a judge on Chopped, but as I understand it from your Instagram, that was not your first experience with the show. Can you tell us about your time sleeping on the green room floor of Chopped? I remember working at Per Se, and at that time, it was legal for them not to pay you for working there. So I wasn't getting paid. I had my own apartment and I, and I had to pay rent. So I actually applied for Chopped and they said, why don't you just like work as a backup chef? And in case one of the chefs mess up, then we will bring you on um, and we'll restart the show. So I would go with them. I would meet them all up. It was at Chelsea Market. I remember we would meet at the Starbucks around the corner first. That was a meetup point. And then we'd walk to Chelsea Market up to the studios. And I would be in the green room and the green room was freezing. There was no (laughs) heat, but it was before my shift started at per se at 11 a.m. And the shift was around 11 a.m. to 1 a.m. So it was a very long shift. And that was an early night. So I would go home after the shift at per se, sleep for five hours, meet them at six o'clock in the morning, sleep in the green room. Because I, (laughs) after the first couple of times, I knew no one was really doing anything that egregious to like get themselves off the show. So then I would just sleep in that green room on the floor, cuddled up in my winter jacket. And (laughs) then they would wake me up. Then I would go to per se and cook. And I would pray every day that no one got hurt because call outs were not a thing back then. You could not call out of work. You just didn't work there anymore. If you call out, you might as well just not show up ever again. Mm -hmm. There was that integrity that like, if you chose this job, you knew the parameters, you also knew the consequences. I think people don't understand that like working somewhere, like it's a team. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't show up, we don't just have back. This isn't a play. We don't have backups for every single character. It really affects everyone. You show up every day, even if you don't really want to. So that was, that was my time with Chopped. It's crazy that I'm now a judge on Chopped. It's a beautiful thing. And I hope it inspires others to like, just keep going. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter how many no's you get. You just need that one yes. And it could change your life. It's come full circle. I mean, what what was that moment like just stepping on set as a judge on the other side of the table for the first time? It was beautiful. I was in a really good place. I was doing a social media cleanse. So I hadn't been on social media for a month. I had given up my smartphone. So I only had a flip phone. I was reading books <laughs> all the time. And I remember just, I was reading a book in between like takes and stuff. It was, it was beautiful. My cousin was next to me, Tiffany Derry. You know, she's a chef in Texas. And it was, it was just a beautiful moment. It was very surreal, very surreal, but also comfortable because I mm-hmm. knew I would be there one day. How do you approach being a judge to the contestants and, and how do you frame your feedback to them? My judgment is very direct. It's, you know, here's what was wrong with the dish. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not cutting corn. I'm not like every other judge doing the compliment sandwich. I either really love this thing or I don't. And that's how I play it. It's like, you know, you're actually getting a real critique from me. If this thing is undercooked, it's undercooked. If the thing is cooked perfectly, it's cooked perfectly. You know, and maybe I thought you were going to do something crazy and I didn't agree with it. And then you proved me wrong. And I'm going to tell you about that because mm-hmm. I've been in their shoes. You know, I've competed on these shows. And, you know, I, I, I want the real, I don't want the fake or the fluff. And I know viewers want that too. And there's plenty of other judges to do that stuff. I'm on that show for a reason. So I want to be myself all the time. 
If you could create a chopped basket inspired by your life story, what would be in it? It would be sparkling water, sour patch watermelon, bacon, and foie gras. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so what would you make with that now? I would make a sour patch watermelon gas streak. I would like put the bacon in liquid nitrogen and then (laughs) put it in a food processor, a roboku, so it's a bacon powder. And then I would dust the foie gras on that and sear it in that okay. bacon. You, you know what I mean? All so right. I have that salty, you know, brininess on the outside of the foie. And then a little sour, sweet and sour. Yeah. And then the sparkling water, you know, because I got a lot of free time. I make a little <laughs> cocktail, you know. There you go. With the sparkling water. So so that's what I would do. I love it. I mean, when you're traveling, you know, filming for work or 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 doing events or other things, you do you try to explore what that city has to offer? Always. And I eat where the people eat. I would eat where the blue collar people eat because that's the real soul of the city. I, mm-hmm. It's so important, you know, and I don't plan anymore. Back in the day when I traveled, I would make sure I had every restaurant listed out. I mean, no, I, I actually don't care. I'm not trying to eat at any restaurant that's like on any list. I'm trying to like meet someone and say like, when I go to restaurants, I ask the front desk, like, where should I eat? And they're like, oh, there's this restaurant. We can call to make your reservation. I'm like, where do you eat? <laughs> on your lunch break where do you eat on your days off that's where i want to go i want to go to a place where they, there's no reservations you have to know somebody to, to know that that place even exists those are the places that excite me nowadays where are you going next baltimore other than that i'm going to ethiopia for about two weeks oh wow is that just for i mean what what's the it's just for the, it's just for a little just, little break you know and i want to yeah. go and, and see you know see the land and see where everybody came from you know, and uh, Ethiopian food has always been uh, important to me and a big influence. So, um, so yeah, it's exciting for me. Look forward to following along on Instagram unless you decide to go on another cleanse. But uh, I'm sure everybody would love to experience that through your eyes as well. This has been so fun and enlightening and inspirational talking to you. Um, I'm going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question. All right. One thing you wish you knew when opening a restaurant. The names of every food critic. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to know. Advice you would give your 10-year-old self. Wipe the toilet seat after you pee. <laughs> I'm sure everybody would appreciate that, uh, that advice. Music that you usually have playing in the kitchen. R&B and hip-hop. Hip-hop and R&B, always. Mm-hmm. Describe your sense of style. Elite. I like that. Best meal you've ever had. My mom's gumbo. Easy. Key to a good dinner party. Make sure the food is done before people arrive. So you're mm. just heating it. I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. What is your superpower? Believing in myself. And manifestation. Manifestation is my, that's my superpower. Final question. We ask everybody the same question. This is not rapid fire, so you can take as much time as you want. But basically, we just want to know what's on the menu for your perfect food day. So we want to hear what are you eating for breakfast? What are you eating for lunch, dinner, dessert? Throw some snacks in if you want. There are no rules and you can time travel. You can, you know, have any chef cook for you. Do whatever you want, basically. is It's your day. My perfect breakfast would be an black truffle egg custard from Per Se with my mom's Creole potatoes and the most beautiful smoothie you've ever seen in your entire life. Tastes like sunshine. There's kale, there's broccoli, there's carrots, there's mangoes, there's bananas. It's made with oat milk. There is apples in it and nectarines. My lunch 
would be sushi from Sushiko in New York. Okay. All the omakase, mm-hmm. delicious bites. You know, toro. Maybe if they have firefly squid and the, all the bellies, hamachi, salmon, mm-hmm. everything. You know, different types of like live king crab. All the all the goodness. I would have like a midday snack of tacos, Love and it, it would be chiripa and lengua and cabeza mm-hmm. and chorizo. And then for dinner, it would be chicken wings and pork fried rice from Chinese takeout in New York. I love lots, it. With lots of duck sauce. And then for dessert, some Jenny's ice cream. Yeah. And a slice of my sister's cheesecake. I love it. That is a perfect food day. And again, congratulations on all of your achievements, your accomplishments, and I'm sure uh, much more to come in the in the life of Kwame. So thank you so much. Thank you. I have a nail polish line dropping in a couple oh. days, y'all. Okay. So I'm excited. <laughs> Look out for that. that. Speaking yes. of which. All right. Yes, yes, so yes, much yes, going yes. on constantly. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. A huge thank you to Kwame for sharing his story with us today. A true comeback kid who is here to stay. You can catch him on the new season of Chopped Tuesdays at 9, 8 central on Food Network. As always, thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 